weird year of like exponential business growth, uh, dealing with figuring out how to become a mother, saying goodbye to my father, all in this portal. And I couldn't make it to the mat like I used to. All these yoga styles have value because they all affect your energy in different ways. It's very yeah. rare that I come to the mat or do some breath work and I'm like, oh, I feel worse than before. That just, just, just it's never happened. It yeah. really has never happened. <laughs> oh, I bet. If you've listened to the show, you've probably heard my uh, experiences with yoga. So when I was 14, my mother forced me to do yoga because I had scoliosis and it was hard as hell and I didn't appreciate it. And I worked with this amazing yoga master named Ramanan Patel. And people are like, Oh my God, you work with them. I'm like, yeah, but I didn't like it. I didn't appreciate it. It was like homework. Have you done your yoga? So I had a bad taste in my mouth. Then in college, I tried it again. Still wasn't, didn't do it. But then when I got pregnant with my daughter, she's 19 now, I did it every single day of my pregnancy. And it was fabulous. Now I have since fallen off the yoga wagon, yoga wagon and fallen onto the Pilates wagon. However, I think yoga is so important and it works so well for so many people. So I'm thrilled to have the wonderful Brett Larkin. She's a distinguished yoga teacher, trainer, healer, founder of Uplifted Yoga and visionary entrepreneur dedicated to guiding individuals on their personal transformation journey through the practice of yoga. And I love, 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 love her book, Yoga Life, Habits, Poses and Breathwork to Channel Joy Amidst the Chaos. Hi, Brett. Hi, thanks so much for having me and for looking at the book. Oh, looking at the book. Oh, I read the book. And let me tell you, it's great. My husband got certified a year ago to teach yoga. And the second he finished, they hired him. Okay, now he has a regular full-time job right now. But I told him, hon, you've got to read this book. Because so much of it reminds me of things that he has said and that passion for yoga. Now, I want to go right to the introduction because you share your struggles of caring for your dad during his life-ending battle with cancer. And I apologize, I'm sorry for your loss. And also while being a first-time mom with the newborn. And you said that during that time, you had an epiphany. Tell us about this time. Yes. So I was someone who you know, really took pride in the fact that I practiced every day. I have this big community that I teach to on YouTube. So I was really cheerleading for everyone to, you know, make daily yoga a reality and to, you know, I was doing a 60 to 90 minute practice. I was going teaching in studios, taking classes in studios. And it was so humbling, Lisa, when I had what I call this rock bottom year where it was just a very emotional year. I became a mom for the first time. So I gave birth, which is a huge change for anyone. At the same time, I had my father living with me dying of cancer. Uh, So my my son entered the world and my dad left the world in the same 12-month period. And my my father, I was really his sole care provider. My parents were divorced. I'm the only child. He didn't remarry. Mm -hmm. So it was like me and my husband and him. And at the same time, my business, the online yoga teacher trainings, because I certify yoga teachers online, uh, was doing really well. And so it was this weird year of like exponential business growth, uh, dealing with figuring out how to become a mother, saying goodbye to my father, all in this portal. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't make it to the mat like I used to. I couldn't do 60 minutes. I couldn't do 90 minutes. I couldn't get to the studio. And I remember feeling like a fraud because here I (laughs) was cheerleading for other people to do that. And in the chaos of my new normal, 
uh, it, I was lucky if I made it to my mat at all. And sometimes it would just be for 10 or 15 minutes. So in this dark period, I really forced myself to question, like, can yoga help me? And if we look at a lot of the ancient philosophy of yoga, a lot of it's about re- achieving enlightenment or this, this thing yogis call samadhi, this otherworldly state of feeling interconnected to everyone and everything. And I just remember thinking, that's not what I need right now. Like, I need tools to figure out how to survive until bedtime. Right. Um, and, and that's what <laughs> launched the exploration that led to me doing all the research that I built into this book. Yeah. And you did a hell of a job there. I took so many quotes out of it. One was yoga goes far beyond poses. Well, it's kind of a bait and switch. I think a lot of people, when they think of yoga, they think of these physical postures. It's just become synonymous in our mind. But true yoga, the way I define it in the book is really the science of energy management. And I Mm -hmm. talk a lot about the yoga of awareness, why we should all be interested in yoga goes so far beyond the, the health benefits in terms of flexibility and strength and balance. Yoga isn't just something you do. It's a mindset that you can inhabit. And that's the yoga that I'm really interested in. So of course the book talks about both, but my goal was to take really you know, take some Vedic principles, some yoga philosophy that's quite complicated and make it actionable. I think the other missing ingredient, Lisa, would be the breathing, right? So I always tell people, if you don't have a lot of time and you have to choose between postures and breathing, just breathe because it's more portable. It's more profound. So the, the chapter on breathing is actually the largest chapter in the book for that reason. And, and I was shocked when I figured that out, I was like, wow, it's the quality (laughs) of my breath that affects yes. how good I feel after a yoga practice. It's not the sequence, which yeah. is mind-blowing, but this is really true. And I invite people to feel it in their own body if they're skeptical. Um, and we do that together in the book. Yeah, it's really interesting because I, I don't make time for meditation practice because I just find, I just, my mind, I daydream or something. And then I go back to the breath, back to the breath. But my husband, who's been meditating for over 20 years is like, yeah, that's kind of what it is. So for me though, the reason I bring that up is that I'd much rather spend a few minutes doing some of the wonderful breathing exercises in your book. Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like for me now, it doesn't mean I'm never going to meditate or start a meditation practice, but that's where I'm at now. It's so great that you're sharing that because I completely agree with you. Just trying to sit and meditate isn't going to work for the majority of people, including me, who's been doing this for like 15 years. (laughs) You need breath work first. So. I have really long hair. I comb my hair at night. It's sort of like I comb my hair. I get ready for bed. The the breath work is sort of like the combing of your thoughts. That's the way I mm, often describe I it. It's like that. the combing of your, you know, to just go from the chaos of our daily life where we're inundated with notifications, sort of this always right. on work culture. There's so many demands on our time to try to go from that to sitting and thinking of nothing is is insane. Like nobody can do that. So that's why those breathing techniques, you know, the yogi said the more space between your breaths, the more space between your thoughts. They really mm. believe that those two things were correlated. So doing some pranayama, which is essentially a breathing technique, and there's five that I really offer in the book as being really appropriate for like different personality types and types of people and situations. Doing either just that or that as a precursor to meditation is going to be a game changer for anyone listening to this who wants to meditate. If you're struggling, do breath work first. Because again, that's just kind of going to calm, organize the thoughts, create a little bit more (sighs) space so that then when you do sit, you can just go so much deeper in less time. Oh, absolutely. Now, I want to talk about the three foundational beliefs of your practice. The first one is mix and match. Second is personalize. And the third is adapt. If you can touch on each of those for us. Sure. So 
So often when I meet people, first they tell me they're not flexible enough to do yoga. And then they start asking me like, what style should I do? Right. They think the solution to whatever they're going through, whether it's back pain or, um, you know, something postpartum related or weight loss or flexibility, they think the answer is in the style they pick. And we have all these kind of modernized yoga styles and brands and names. So they get really fixated on that. And what I say in the book right off the bat is just to sort of blow that out of the water and that the style of yoga you choose isn't the solution. And actually the style of yoga you're attracted to is probably not the one that's going to serve to balance you. And we can talk more about that later. But what, what I really say is like all these yoga styles have value because they all affect your energy in different ways. So all of them can be useful to you depending on the moment, depending on the type of person you are and the moment you're facing. So that first value of, uh, or pillar really of mix and match is the idea that instead of just thinking of a style as a solution, we're going to kind of take the role more of like project runway designer. And we're going to pull from all the styles to make something really unique and personalized that's nourishing for you. So we're mixing and matching styles and actually making like your own style, like making like Brett yoga is going to look different from Lisa yoga is going to look different from your husband's yoga um, and, and figuring out how to do that. Um, the, the second one personalized kind of, we've, we've touched into that, right? It's that same idea. And then adapt is, oh my goodness. So many people think advanced yoga is some of these pretzel poses we see or contortionism. And the reframe I offer in the book is that no, an advanced practice is how good are you at adapting your practice to the moment you're in physically, emotionally, Mm -hmm. spiritually. So how well, like, say I'm like, Lisa, you just woke up 10 minutes late. You only have, you know, five minutes to practice and you have to go catch a flight. Would you take those five minutes and know what to do? Let's say I'm like, Lisa, your house is clean. (laughs) Everything is perfect. You have an hour and a half now. Would you know how to expand your ritual or your personal practice to be 90 minutes and really, you know, fill your gas tank up during that time? So what my definition of an advanced practice is, is again, kind of being that mm-hmm. apothecary and that person who knows right. how to whip up the exact yeah. yoga practice that's going to be an antidote to how you're feeling, the type of day that you're about to go live in. For example, if you were about to go catch a flight, I would do five minutes of something very grounding, right? Because right. you're going to be, you know, super <laughs> like insecurity lines. And so it's kind of having that knowledge of yeah. how to expand and contract your ritual and have it match the moment you're in. You know, I want to go back to something that you said a few moments ago about, you know, this certain pose might not be good for you. And I want to get into Ayurveda. But before that, I I want you to tell us about the significance of be good how you are. That was from your father, right? Your father said that to you. you Yes. My father, right before he passed away, he he and I had this really powerful moment where he just, you know, he really looked at me and he and he just said, you know, you always surprise me at how good you are, at how Mm. and you know, it was so touching because I had felt like a failure looking after him this past year of his life. And what I saw is that he was really just acknowledging that you know, no matter what we were going through, that I was putting my best foot forward. And it's uh, included in the book because that's really how I think about the yoga practice. I really never brought anything to yoga that yoga hasn't been able to alchemize or transform or sort of meet me where I am in the darkness and make me feel, if not better, at least different. Uh, So I use that, you surprise me at how good you are in the way that I think about yoga. 
because it's very yeah. rare that I come to the mat or do some breath work and I'm like, oh, I feel worse than before. That just, just it's never happened. It really yeah. has never happened. <laughs> oh, I bet. I bet. Now let's talk a little bit about Ayurveda because I know I was watching, uh, you did this great video where you were talking about your book and you were saying, you know, this this certain fire pose, I'm, I don't know if that's the right name, but this might not be good for you. So talk to us about how Ayurveda plays into all this. Some of your listeners may be familiar with this word Ayurveda. Yeah. For those of them that aren't, Ayurveda yeah, basically translates to the science of life. And mm. one of the things that we break down that happened when yoga came to the West is that Ayurveda and yoga were kind of twins. They were always meant to function together as complementary siblings. But for mm. whatever reason, yoga came West and Ayurveda kind of didn't. It's, it's much less heard of. It's much less popularized. But the reality is that yoga was never meant to be practiced outside of the context of Ayurveda. And oh, what wow. Ayurveda, the science of life, talks about is that how each of us are, are unique, essentially, and that we all have these elements living within us. Many people will recognize some of this from traditional Chinese medicine as well. But Ayurveda basically says that there's those of us who are fire dominant, those of us who are earth dominant, and those of us who are air dominant. And depending what dominance you have, it really affects your personality, how you show up in life, what kind of digestion you have, um, how you're going to react to stress, sort of like yeah. what your strengths and weaknesses are. So when we use Ayurveda as a frame, and there's a quiz right in the book, right off the bat, yeah. so you can figure out if you're fire, earth, or air dominant, uh, it explains so much. Because what happened is when yoga came west, it became this group fitness movement where it's like everyone right. does the same pose in the same cadence, on the same breath pattern, in the same way, with the same alignment at the same time. And, and when we look at the actual history of how yoga developed, that doesn't make any sense. Something mm -hmm. that really uh, works for someone with uh, a high earth in their high earth element uh, could give someone like me with a higher fire, fire element a migraine, right? Mm -hmm. So we, we mm -hmm. have to keep in mind that these poses affect our energy and each of us has different types of energy, which means some of these poses are going to be extremely complementary and help you feel more grounded, more yourself, more mm. balanced. And some are going to spike that dominant element out of balance, actually resulting oh. long-term in you not feeling so great. Uh, and this kind of answers the question of why some students come to me and say like, I love that class. I love that meditation. I love that breathing technique. And someone else is coming and saying, I feel really spacey. I didn't like that. Right. Uh, yeah. So it's because yoga has been taken away from Ayurveda. So part of my mission in this book is to, in a really user-friendly way, reunite these lost siblings um, and get people figuring out how to pick poses and pick breathing techniques that really complement their personality or that their dominant element within them. I want to get into how to live your yoga. You talk about yoga, that's how we're to say wisdom. I like this. You write, what are the yoga sutras and why should you care? All right, tell us a little <laughs> bit about them. And why, why should we care, Brett? <laughs> why should we care? Well, this ties into what we talked about earlier, Lisa, which was like when okay. I was having this kind of like crisis of right. faith with my yoga, like what was in the yoga sutras wasn't helping me because the, mm -hmm. the majority of the yoga sutras, and for those who aren't listening, the yoga sutras are sort of like a textbook of how to achieve enlightenment. It's the mm -hmm. book that we're really focused on in the West uh, when it comes to yoga philosophy. Right. The reality is that it's one of many incredible books, the Upanishads, mm -hmm. the Bhagavad Gita. I mean, there's so many, but yeah. again, this is one of those interesting lost in translations. It's like 
in the West, we're really focused on this one text. And, yeah. and this one text is is beautiful, but for better or worse, it it is very much focused uh, on achieving enlightenment. And that's because it was originally written at the time. If we go back and look at like, what was the context in which this document was put together? It was written and designed for the equivalent of like young priest boys in, in that mm-hmm. time period. So like very young men who were, who were entering like a monastic life and they would just study oh. chant and, you know, spend their entire life in pursuit of this bliss enlightenment state, um, as well as conducting rites and rituals. It was designed for young boys and it was designed for elderly men who, Hmm. again, back in that time period, once you'd kind of been a grandpa and helped your town or village, you would then go wander in the woods and start your life as an ascetic nomad. Uh, this is called the sannyasa stage in Vedic history. And uh, you you would just meditate and prepare to leave your body, right? They believed yeah. in reincarnation. So it was like they would do yogic practices in order to prepare to leave this physical form and go enter the next one. Mm-hmm. So when we look at who this text was written for, it was written for people who literally had nothing else to do, yeah. nothing, <laughs> except <laughs> uh, nice. you know do these <laughs> devotional and ritual practices. Right. Um, mm-hmm. They didn't have to cook. They didn't have to clean. They wow. didn't have a family to look after. They didn't have a job. So when I started digging through this, I I became a little bit frustrated because I said, you know, this this text is beautiful, and there are, and there are some great books out there that that try to really translate and make the Yoga Sutras practical, but. Right. If we fundamentally look at the essence of this text, it wasn't written for what I call the householder, which is you, mm. me, and probably everyone right. listening to this, right? Like yeah. people with pets, kids, garage, <laughs> you know, school tuitions, you know, all the complexities of, of modern life. But the good news is that Patanjali, who authored this text, he did slip in one line, one sutra out of 246 that is really geared towards the householder. And what he calls in the sutras, he, he says, yoga in action looks like this. So to me, that's really important. Yoga in action as opposed to yoga in a monastery or yoga to uh, achieve enlightenment right. or yoga to, right? It's like yeah. the, the, the in, in the battlefield, right? Like yeah. <laughs> this is what yoga looks like. And he gives us three core principles. And I used those three core principles as my life raft during this rock bottom year. And I've used them and now coach people on these three principles because uh-huh. that's how much I believe in them. And I've really let the rest of the yoga sutras go, right? Like I think maybe yeah. when I'm in my sixties, I'll be like, you know what? <laughs> I'm going to spend some time with my grandkids and all the rest of the time I'm going to be devoted to these practices. But until yeah. I'm retired and that's the reality, I'm just focusing on these three principles. And it was so liberating, Lisa, because instead of being so overwhelmed, it was just like, these are just three things that I have to focus on. And so I break down what those are in the book as like an easy way that everyone can live their yoga. The nourish self-awareness, the choose transformation, relinquish control. I love those. Dive in those a little bit more. Okay. So the the first one is... uh, called Svadhyaya, which again, yeah. these, these Sanskrit words are so interesting. They can be translated many different ways. Some of my translations mm-hmm. here are controversial. I'm aware of that. I give people oh. the, you know, the, the trans, the literal translation, and then right. you know, they they can all be translated like 10 to 15 different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so Svadhyaya is often translated as like self-study. And I kind of call it this nourishing self-awareness. It's sort of like you being your own mom or dad. Uh, you mm. you kind of reparenting yourself in, in yeah. essence. 
and taking that time to nourish yourself so that you feel filled up and so that you can then interact with all your peers from a place where your cup is full. Because let's face it, most of the arguments and most of the the negative things that are happening are, are conversations that are happening when we're stressed and we're right. we're not nourished. So kind of it's sort of like the put your life vest on before yes, the person next to you concept. Exactly. Right. Um, obviously, I give a lot more detail in the book, but yeah, it's, it's, great. it's this idea that you need to take care of yourself. You need to take your energy management seriously. And part of this Svadhyaya self-awareness is knowing what your dominant element is, right? Mm, what yeah. what are your habitual uh, tendencies, right? Wh- how do you react to stress? How do you, you know, how does anger show up through your body? Like, I think when we really turn the lens inward and force ourselves to take an honest look, then we can figure out, well, how do we nourish ourselves so that so that we can make this, you know, uh, take yeah. care of ourselves and make this look as, as well as it can. Um, the second yeah, principle is tapas. Tapas is often translated as heat, but it's so much more than that. I really translate it as like this burning desire to evolve, which mm-hmm. means that we need to choose transformation. We need to do things differently. And one of the cheat phrases I love for this Vedic principle is just cultivate the opposite. And we can, oh, yeah. I just use this all the time. It's like, if I'm a workaholic and I want to answer emails after our conversation, I'm going to cultivate the opposite and go outside for a walk. If I want to reach for a Snickers bar, I'm going to make a green smoothie instead. If I am, you know, really worried about money and it feels scary for me to live, leave like a huge tip, I'm going to force myself to do that uncomfortable action. Right. And it's through right. forcing us to do things that aren't our natural pattern that we evolve. Right. So it's right. kind of like intentionally choosing discomfort, which is what mm. a lot of the yoga poses are as well. Right. Like True. balancing on <laughs> oh, one yeah. leg, being in an awkward <laughs> squat. Right. But this yes. is how the mat, mat is a microcosm for, for life. Mm. So the reality mm. is like, if we want to change, we need to do things differently. And that's what tapas is about. Uh, the last principle is Ishvari Pranidhana, which some translators translate as God, uh, supreme surrender. I just say, relinquish control. That's what that principle to me is about for someone who's living in yoga in action, right? Who's right. like moving through moving through a very busy active life. We need to relinquish control of the things we can't control anyway. If you look at most of the reasons you're suffering are upset right now, and I invite listeners to do this. If you think about those things, they're things that you can't control. For sure. You- only things we really can control. I mean, it's really humbling when you when you make a list, and yeah, I do in the book. The things we can actually yes. control are like our our breathing. Yeah. When we go to sleep and when we wake up, the clothes we choose to put on our body if you don't wear a uniform, and 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 like how we react to things, and that, and that's pretty much it. Everything yeah. else is outside of our control, whether the flight will be on time or not, whether my kid will have the career I want, whether my husband will get groceries after work or not. Like really, I can't control any of those things. Yeah. And if we come back to yoga as the science of energy management, I think what the yogis figured out a really long time ago is like the biggest energy waste is to like try to control things you can't control. It just yes. burns so much unnecessary energy and results in suffering. And we see this in, in Buddhism as well. They say, um, yeah. you know, pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. <laughs> like uh, it's the suffering yeah. of, of trying to control the thing that that is causing more pain than necessary. So yeah. I use that cheat phrase all the time. Relinquish control, relinquish control, relinquish control. And 
ultimately this principle is asking us to trust in life more, right? Because in order to relinquish control, we have to have faith in a benevolent universe. And so that's why that principle also gets translated as God, because these things kind of go hand in hand. But the idea of relinquishing control, I think, is something that everyone can recognize is like probably a good idea. So that's, again, I tried to make this book really approachable and doable. Oh, it is. Um, And I invite everyone to just use that phrase throughout the rest of the week. Yeah, you did. You really did such an amazing job. This time of year, our skin gets so dry, especially for those of us who live in cold climates. So I couldn't live without One Earth Body Care. Their Skin Fix, which is great for your entire body. It's a thick, wonderful salve. You can rub it in your hands to soften it and it makes your skin amazing. There's a day and night facial oil, which I use every day and night, and it really, really has helped my skin. There's a sleep balm that is also a salve consistency that has lavender and other things to help you relax. Of course, my all-time favorite is their natural deodorant because I am no longer smelly. If you've got a baby, they've got a baby butt saver. The other thing that has completely transformed my hair is their shampoo and conditioner bars. They've got Skin Fix for Pets, which has helped my glue stop eating his paws all the time or nibbling on them. And of course, they also have a pet shampoo bar. Please check them out at OneEarthBodyCare.com. I want to get into some of the different types of yoga. You've got Hatha, Vinyasa, Bikram, Bikram, Ashanga, Yin Yoga, Restorative, uh, Kundalini Yoga. And then in this chapter, it's great. You really get into the history of modern yoga. You're able to help us create a a home practice space, tips for bringing yoga into your home. And then you have what's your yoga relationship status. So touch on a couple of these. Again, I want people to get the book. I don't want to give everything away. Well, the yoga relationship status is just a fun way to, I really want to include everyone on the journey of the book because let's face it, some of you are not going to want to do yoga every day. Yeah. Gasp. And like, that's okay. (laughs) I'm okay with that. Like this book is still for you. So, so, you know, one of the things that was a challenge with this book is, you know, I've certified a lot of yoga teachers. I wanted this book Mm -hmm. to serve them, but my bigger mission is I wanted anyone who's skeptical or anyone who's just been curious about trying yoga, but felt intimidated to also you know, be able to get a lot out of this book. And and I think yeah. I fulfilled on that mission because we just focus on personalization, right? Right. Um, so your yoga relationship status might be like you you are not in a relationship with yoga right now. Like you're in a relationship right. with your couch or or Pilates <laughs> or some yes. other thing, right? And and this book can still help you because of just the, yeah. the habits and the lifestyle hacks. Um, someone else might be doing yoga, you know, maybe they're attached to a certain yoga style. Mm-hmm. So I see that a lot. They say, you know, I'm just a devotee of this one style. I don't, I don't want to go off script. I don't want to personalize. Like I just want to follow yeah. along to this style. And, and to that, I say that's beautiful, but, you know, check out some of these personalization frameworks, because if you can marry that with the style you love, it's going to be so much more potent. You're going to feel so much better uh, yeah. after your practice. And, and then, you know, some of the other ones are like people who have injuries, people who've tried yoga previously and it, and it didn't work for them. Um, the, the book at the end has this giant adaptations guide. So yes. while I teach the personalization framework in part two of the book, the, the part three of the book, my editor and I went back and forth. We were like, is this part three? Is this a, you know, the yeah. sort, like what is this at the end? We, and we ended up calling it the adaptations appendix, but it's basically right. 
a ton of tips and guidelines on how to further personalize your routine for major life moments. Uh, There's one for anxiety. There's one for prenatal yoga. There's one for weight loss. There's one for like all the things that I know students over the years are interested in and have come to me with. There's one for menopause, right? So there's a lot of information on how you can adapt your personalized routine for a particular moment in time or, or potential goal that you have. I love that. Now, we were just talking about part one, and I love that when you get to part two, you write, quote, friends, we made it. You discover your dominant dosha. We've distilled yoga in action into three core concepts. We just talked about those. Uh, Your home practice space exists. And now you talk about how it's time for to design the personalization yoga ritual. And you talk about you have sit, warm up, move, stretch, meditate. And I really love these worksheets that you have in here. Tell us about those. You have an uplifted yoga personal practice worksheet. So the promise of this book is that if you go mm-hmm. on the adventure with me, which I hope you yes. will, you're yes. going to finish or kind of graduate the book with this little worksheet filled out. And this worksheet right. is very simple. It's like half a page. Do not be intimidated. <laughs> and you can actually fill out the whole worksheet just by taking the quizzes in the book. So, yeah. you know, it's yeah. really, really user-friendly. But the idea is that you'll finish the book with a 20-minute ritual that's personalized to you. So that's like right. Lisa yoga, right? Yes. Everything. Because, I mean, the, this modern age, we, we want optimization, right? Like, I don't want to spend Absolutely. 20 minutes doing a generic thing or following along. I mean, yeah. I could do that. <laughs> but what I found for myself is like if I practice my soulmate postures that are designed to complement my personality with maybe some tweaks based on what's going on in my day, yeah. like that 20 minutes goes from just being like kind of nice and relaxing to like incredibly potent and setting me up for success. So that's the idea. And then the the final chapter, not to skip ahead, but you'll graduate the book with this 20 minute ritual. And then the last chapter in the book is showing you how this ritual is modular, meaning that if you only have five minutes to practice, if you're in this type of day or this type of personality, just do this section right? Yep. Um, if you have a little mm-hmm. bit longer, just do these two sections. Here's how the sections mix and match. Uh, oh, your entire house is clean. Like we talked about, you yeah. know, you're going to do like a two hour version and here's how to expand it. So right. I don't want people to think like, I need to always do 20 minutes. It's like, we're using that as your home base. And then we're further educating you on how to make this totally modular so it can fit into whatever. That's that yogic adaptability skill that we talked yeah. about, right? So oh, that yeah. no matter where you are, if you have a mat, if you don't have a mat, if you have people around you, you don't, you, you know, whatever it is that you can do something, right? That's the idea yes. is that we just do something instead of nothing. Yeah. And I love the quiz warm up. What's your motivation to move? You know, how often do you tend to practice and you have A, B and C? What's your relationship with movement without overthinking? How would you define your day-to-day schedule? I like to be busy all the time. I don't like downtime. I like to go, 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 Because that's going to so. affect your quiz results when I then tell you what poses yes. are best suited for you. Um, exactly. Lisa, when I was a little girl at, at, at sleepaway camp, like my friends and I mm-hmm. love doing those like 17 magazine, you know, little quizzes where you yeah. circle the answers. Like, yeah. so that's what I modeled these quizzes after. I was like, yes. this is what I want the experience to be. Like, it's like really fun and just lighthearted. And then right. kind of just giving you some really great pointers to the type of yoga and breath work that's going to work for you. I like this too. Which do you need more structure or sensation? So you have have this move, find your ideal flow. When do you have the most energy? If you had described your daily mood, what word would you choose? How easy it is for you to complete a project? I mean, it's so incredibly thorough. And really, you I mean, it's just such a wonderful book. And I think people listening are probably thinking, wow, I thought, you know, we talk about yoga, you would just be talking about like how to get yoga arms and like the ascetic things, right? I feel like that's 
kind of the problem or, or maybe for me a perception is I'll see women come and men coming out of like the yoga studios and I'm like, oh my God, they all have those arms and I don't and I'm intimidated. But this is like, it's so much deeper than that. Like that's just surface crap. Although those arms are nice. (laughs) Well, that makes me so happy to hear you say, because I mean, I think one of my fears with the book is like, are people going to get it? Right. Because we're so used to a yoga book being like, do this style, right. Or like being very prescriptive. And and this isn't that at all. This is very interactive. This is very lighthearted. This is very, you know, take what works for you and leave the rest. Like even if you just, you know, do some deep breathing while you're waiting for your bathtub to fill, listening to the water, like that's a Mm. success. I mean, I really do think any effort to observe and deepen our breath is a success. Like that is yoga in action. And and yoga is about awareness and this energy management um, so much more than the poses are just such a small part of it, really. That's yeah, that's what's so fascinating. And I don't think people, and that's why your book is so essential, because I don't think a lot of people realize that. And you can, you can put these into anything. Like even if I'm not doing yoga, I benefited greatly from reading your book, although it has encouraged me to start doing some yoga. <laughs> you know, it's just opens you up. Well, that's a great, uh, thank you for telling me that because, sure. it's, you know, it's like, yeah, maybe you primarily want to stick with Pilates or you primarily want to stick with weightlifting, but right. you can just sprinkle those three or four soulmate poses that you get connected with through the book. Yeah. You know, just as a pre-weight, pre-weightlifting routine or like something that you just do as a cool down after Pilates, right? So the the soulmate poses are those poses that really get you breathing the deepest, the fastest, and most efficiently. So I think those are worth discovering, right? Because it's not like you then have to be a yogi or do a yoga practice, although I would love that. Um, (laughs) But you can just kind of integrate it here and there amidst the other things you're doing. Like after I come back home from a walk, I do these three little poses or I do this stretch while I watch TV. I mean, I have a whole section where I talk about how I stretch and watch TV at the same time. Yeah. Um, Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. I love that. I mean, now, is that as beneficial for my nervous system as stretching in silence and doing deep breathing? (laughs) No. But I mean, it's still better than nothing, right? Exactly. So that's the approach that we're taking here. Yeah, no, I, I have, um, I have to strengthen my vastus medialis. That's for people that's like the inner part of your thigh to support my knee. So I will do my uh, isometric exercises while I watch television. That's a little different because it's just, you know, tightening and releasing. Now, one of the things too that I loved was in chapter seven, stretch. You write, the goal of your practice is not to obsess about flexibility, but to stretch into the best version of yourself. This requires introspection. Give us some tips on on more about that and how you do that. Yes. Yes. Well, I see more tears and emotion in the stretch segment of yoga classes than any other section. And I think Mm -hmm. we're really experts in this day and age at avoiding our feelings. We we are in this constant state of busyness that society approves of, (laughs) that our devices enable. So anytime I feel discomfort, And I mean, even for those of us who are the most aware, uh, Mm -hmm. if I feel an uncomfortable emotion, like I usually I'm going to reach for my phone and kind of go on social media or I'm going to check my email or I'm going to put some some food in my mouth. Like I'm going to do something to distract from really feeling that emotion. And what happens in the stretch segment of a yoga class is like you are in maybe a forward fold, let's say seated on the ground. You're feeling a lot of sensation in the hips and low back you're alone with your thoughts. So while it's not meditation per se, it's meditation-like, mm-hmm. right? Because yes, yes. in up to that point in, in a yoga class, 
you're moving around a lot, right? Like you're mm-hmm. flowing through movements. You're, you're like going from triangle pose to warrior two to the teacher's voice. If you're practicing along with the video or even your own, you know, yeah. guided moving from here to there, like it's keeping your mind preoccupied. And then when right. you hit the floor and you're just in a long statically held stretch with no more movement, it's like your brain has nothing to attach to anymore, right? It's not right. thinking about the next pose we're going to go into or the choreography. Like you are just alone with your breath and your emotions. And for many people that can be super triggering. It can feel frightening because what happens is kind of like those bubbles at the bottom of a champagne glass. Those old emotions start to bubble to the surface and all the things that your body's been wanting you to feel and wanting you to process uh, float to the surface. So what I talk about in, in the stretch section is really you know, exiting competitive stretching mode, first of all, because that's right. just, you know, it just yeah. naturally happens. You feel like you have to touch your toes. You're, you're looking around the room to see how other flexible, <laughs> you know, how flexible other people are, right. how you stack rank. Like you just do this. <laughs> I do it. Like it's yeah. just uh, in an involuntary response. So mm-hmm. it's gaining an awareness of that, but also realizing that this stretch time is a really potent emotional processing time where we can let go of what's no longer serving us, where we can allow ourselves to feel what we need to feel and that it will be uncomfortable. I mean, I think we need to talk more about that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I love that you wrote growth, pain, and how to know the difference. Because what came to my mind, you know, that whole no pain, no gain, I've never liked that because Mm -hmm. I feel like if you're in pain, your body's trying to tell you something, but I'm thinking more of like heavy weightlifting or something. So talk to us about what you meant by that. When you're in these long yogic stretches, mm-hmm. you're going to feel sensation. And right. what I talk about is how it's really important to know, is this therapeutic sensation, meaning uh, that okay. something's changing, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. Uh, the, the fascia is rehydrating or yeah. you're stretching in a new way or something's kind of getting unblocked and unstuck. And there's going to be sensation associated with that. Right. Or... Is what you're feeling a skeletal limitation, which is usually like sharp shooting pain. So how to know the difference is like this therapeutic sensation that I would encourage people to breathe into because usually it's like, uh, it's usually broader than a silver dollar. It could Mm -hmm. be tingly, warm, heat, like all of those things are like, if you can stay in that and breathe into it probably something's changing at like a physical and chemical level in your body. Tears may come. Like, again, you need to use your breath a lot to stay with it, but you want to maybe challenge yourself to stay with that sensation because that's the tapas, the heat, the alchemy of something rearranging and changing in your body. That's Mm -hmm. not to be confused with anything that feels sharp, shooting, localized, smaller than a silver dollar. That's probably the skeletal limitation that I think we touched, uh, or I don't know if we've touched on that yet, but that, yeah. that like not everyone's body's built the same way yeah, and you're probably, yeah. it's probably like bone on bone, like, like your body oh, doesn't yeah. want to do that or <laughs> that's a no-go area for you. So it's really yeah. important to, to become a body detective and know the difference between these two sensations. Yeah, I think so too. You got to listen to your body too. Mm-hmm. And if you feel like you're having the sharp pain and the other pains you talked about, you got to stop. You back right? off, like yeah. back off immediately. Don't be like the guy next, you know, next to me is so much more flexible. Well, that's the guy next to you, right? right? I mean, we have to work within wherever we are and whatever we have going on and, and work to get better, but at our own pace. Yes. Yes. Right. I think that's super important. Now, 
Looking at meditating, I let you write, observing your thoughts, good, bad, or indifferent, has immense value. For most of us, meditation is the only opportunity to witness our overactive minds from a place of calm. And I completely agree. And I want to get there. And going back to that, I think that it's so good that you had all those different types of breath that you recommend. And it really, I mean, every chapter is great, but for I like being able to immediately go, go oh, I'm going to try the alternate nostril breathing, or I'm going to try the Darth Vader breathing, or there was another one that had a really funny name. <laughs> what, what was Armpit it? breathing? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I was looking at my notes. Yeah. I couldn't remember. Oh my, what is that? The armpit, the armpit breathing. You, you put your kinda... hands underneath your armpits, kind of oh, like okay, the like little. Mar- no, you don't have to smell your armpits. You're just well. See, what's really interesting, Lisa, is we have all these yes. lymphatic, uh, your, like, network yeah. here in the mm-hmm. armpit area. So, yeah. as crazy as it sounds, you know, actually putting some pressure there, there there's so many health mm. benefits. So, um, oh, and it's a great to one know. too for people who don't want to maybe touch their face and do the alternate nostril breathing. Yeah, I do like that alternate nostril breathing, though. I think it's so important. You also talk about the higher self and how meditation cultivates this relationship. Expand on this for us. Sure. So to to touch on what you mentioned previously, oh sure, uh, I have a and and we'll, we can talk about that as well. But this yeah. idea that meditation gives us an opportunity to observe our thoughts and and oh, the analogy yes. I like to use here, and I want to just share it with listeners, is like if you imagine you never deleted a file on your laptop or you never organize it into folders, or same with your phone, right? Even these incredibly (laughs) supercomputer, I mean, we have a supercomputer in the palm of our hand, like it will stop functioning if you never delete anything and never upgrade the software, like it will die. So right. Hey, hon, my computer's not working. Hey, hon, did you update? How many files? So I did that recently. I got everything into folders, but anyway, go on. (laughs) And it's the same for us. Right. It's right. the same for us. Yeah. Like one of my favorite teachers described meditation as like taking out the garbage of yeah. the mind by, you know, witnessing your thoughts. And it reminds me mm. of something you said, I think earlier in the episode, where if you get distracted by thoughts, one of my favorite tips in the book is just to start labeling your thoughts into oh, different yeah. categories. I should try so that. So yeah. if you think of something, you're like, okay, to-do list item, right? So mine are like mm-hmm. to-do list item, worry right? Like what's yeah. going to happen with my son? Da, 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 worry. Like right. I just kind of like you'd slot, you know, papers into a philo facts yeah. with different category headings. It's like you just start labeling the thoughts and it's so powerful because just that act, it kind of interrupts the thought and it shows you that the, the thought is not you, right? right? It helps you step into a place of the observer or what we call witness consciousness in yoga. Mm. And this one step is so beneficial. So I kind of break meditation into three steps. Obviously, yeah. if we can do that breath work as a precursor, that's great. That first mm-hmm. step is really about just observing the mind and being willing to witness right. and kind of do right. some philo facts labeling. Uh, this is so powerful because again, just instead of being in the movie, in, in the in the film, right? Like in the movie, mm-hmm. we're suddenly in a movie theater, movie theater chair watching yeah. the movie, right? Right. Um, so, so just that labeling exercise, I love, I love sharing that one. That's and great. Then I'm going to try that. So many people want to do meditation for stress relief, but something I really tried to introduce in this chapter is that meditation is actually where you can get some of your best ideas. Mm-hmm. It's actually a place where you can cultivate so much creativity. And if we look, there's so many very famous creative people from yeah. professional athletes to music professionals like Madonna who, who meditate. And it's, and right. it's not just for relaxation. It's because it's a place where you can channel these brilliant insights. 
So the idea in yoga is that as you sit in meditation, you draw your energy or your awareness up the spinal column. People can choose to visualize this or not. Mm, But the idea is you're connecting instead of if you think of like the frequency we're living in as like one radio station where there's like a lot of thoughts and a lot of information. (laughs) And most of it, like most of our thoughts aren't original. We're thinking the same things. It's kind of like the top 10 songs on the radio. It's like (laughs) those same worries or those same sort of thought trains. It's like there's not a lot of originality here. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, what we can do in meditation is is we sort of create more space between those thoughts, realize we're not those thoughts we can connect with like a different radio station, a different frequency. And this is where I personally get some of my best ideas. It's like, I'll come to my meditation seat with a problem that seems unsolvable, right? Like I have a job offer in this city, but my kids are in school here. Like, what do I do? Right. And I often get really interesting insights uh, when I sit and instead of, you know, we have this tendency to go outward. Like we Mm -hmm. want to Google the answer. I always want to call my mom for the answer. Uh, You know, like we want to do anything other than just go in. But if you go in, get quiet, create more space between your thoughts, allow the energy in your body to kind of move to a different frequency channel. Mm -hmm. A lot of the times that's where you get your best ideas, like creative solutions you'd never come up with making a pro-con list. Although you can do that too. But this is inviting in like a different aspect of your consciousness to come online. And the thing that it's most like is, I don't know if anyone's had the experience listening of like getting like a great idea in the shower or like a hit where you're just like, those aha moments, right? Some yes, people get them yeah. when they exercise. For me, it's, mm-hmm. it's like in the shower a lot. And so like yogis knew how to cultivate not those insights, but the kind of consciousness that right. breeds those insights yeah. on demand, right? And this is where wow. we come back to the science of energy management and why this, right. these ancient practices are so brilliant and they're so relevant even today. Yeah, they really are. You know, Brett, I'm curious, and I bet the audience is too. When did you start doing yoga? I started dabbling in yoga when I was finishing up college. Mm. And like many, I was obsessed with, you know, what style should I pick? And being a fire dominant person, I picked the hardest, most competitive, (laughs) hot yoga (laughs) that exists. Um, So, I mean, I'm a great example of how the the style that you initially pick is usually not the one that is really, truly going to balance you, but it's kind of playing into what you like, right? Like like attracts yes. like, like wants like. So if you are right. a fire dominant person, you're going to crave fire. If you're an earth dominant person, you're going to crave more earth, which is why when you said yeah. you loved restorative yoga, I'm like, of course. Yeah. <laughs> so you want to indulge in, in what you like, but right. the phrase I give in the book, which I think is a great cheat phrase for everyone is to indulge in what you want and then transition to what you truly need. So for you, Lisa, that could look like doing some restorative yoga, meeting yourself with what you want, but then transitioning to what you actually need to balance your energy, which might be something you're a little less comfortable with. Same for me. Yeah, I think that's so important. I'm wondering, and I'm assuming you've come across people who might be in yoga for the reasons of like we talked about, just aesthetics. And Mm -hmm. you never had to sit, but you feel like they're still really tense and they're still like, oh God, my triceps aren't big enough. Have you had to ever say to someone, listen, I don't know if this is, you know, working for you or feeding your soul or giving you what you need, perhaps if you try this, has that happened before? 
all the time. And, okay. you know, either two things will happen. They'll either be incredibly receptive and say, really? Like, tell me more. Or they'll be extremely defensive. Yeah, and that means they're not ready yet, right? They're right. not ready to to change, to cultivate the opposite, to go through that tapas transformation portal that yoga is really asking us all to walk through. They're still right. like, I'm doing 108 sun salutations and that's my <laughs> thing and that's my personality. And, and, and that's fine too, right? Again, even the okay. wrong type of yoga for you is better than no yoga at all. Uh, okay. But I think what I'm trying to invite people to do in this book is, is really be a little bit more nuanced um, yeah. than like the standard yoga styles that are kind of like given to us on a, on a platter. Yes, I agree. Right. This has been fantastic. You are welcome back anytime. Again, the book is absolutely phenomenal. Phenomenal. I'm going to buy it for my husband. Yoga Life, Habits, Poses, and Breathwork to Channel Joy Amidst the Chaos. Is there anything that you were hoping to talk about that we didn't talk about today? And again, you're always welcome back. No, this has been so fun. Thank you so much for the time and attention you gave the book. And I'm so glad that you are getting something out of it and that your husband hopefully will too. I'd love to, you know, stay in touch with people. Getting the book is a great way. I have tons of online trainings and courses. If you want to certify as an instructor or just do, you know, some classes online with me, I have a membership for students. So lots of ways to keep in touch at my website. So thank you so much for having me on, Lisa. Oh, sure, Brett. Tell us your website. It's just brettlarkin.com with two T's. So B-R-E-T-T-L-A-R-K-I-N. Oh, I'm so glad you came on. Everybody get Brett's book. It's fantastic. Check her out online. Also, if you want to check me out, you can check me out on Instagram and Twitter. I think it's, oh, I still call Twitter. And TikTok at Lisa Davis MPH. Also keep coming back to Health Power. We got five days a week, Monday, let's see, Monday, Thursday, and Friday. I'm talking about um, articles from Naturally Savvy where I highlight some great tips on healthy living. Tuesday, we usually have an author. And Wednesday, we've got Kayla Capiolo, who is a fantastic chef and allergy-free everything cooking. So be sure to tune in and rate, review, subscribe, and keep coming back. Thanks so much. Well, that's it for our show today. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you. And we would appreciate it if you could please rate and review and leave a comment because the more you engage with our podcast, the more you will find it and help other people find it wherever they listen to their podcast. So be sure to follow us. I'm at Andrea Donsky and at Naturally Savvy and Lisa at Lisa Davis MPH. Thank you so much. And please share this episode because the more you share shows you care. We'll see you next time.